Our first reading this morning is from Exodus 19, verses 16 through 20. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. And there was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed the mountain. The word of the Lord.
from Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 29. Pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and through it many become defiled. See to it that no one becomes an immoral and godless person as Esau was who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no chance to repent even though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to something that can be touched. A destructive fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a, a trumpet and a voice whose word made the heavens beg that not another word be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and festival gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse the one who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates that the removal of what is shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For indeed, our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in the run-up of giving the Ten Commandments on this desert mountain of Mount Sinai, there is a lot of what feels like security measures that God places around the mountain. God tells Moses to, to fence off the mountain, that no one's to touch it, not even animals, or they're going to die. And the reason why all this security gets put in place 
is because it seems like there's this concern that people are going to be so excited to see God that they're going to want to rush the mountain, right? Like an uncontrollable mass stampede. It feels like at the top of Mount Sinai that it's not God, but like Taylor Swift performing, and they're just going to like force their way up to see her. But then God speaks. And suddenly, nobody is tempted to rush the boundary. You can see this in verse 18 of Exodus chapter 20. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. In other words, you got this, Moses. We trust you, buddy. Have a good time. Apparently, when God showed up, it was a little scarier than everyone was anticipating. This appearance of God is what is known as a theophany, which is this cool-sounding theological word that simply means a moment when the divine appears to humans, when the creator is revealed to the created. But for most of the theophanies in the Old Testament, especially at Mount Sinai, these are not happy events. Why? Because very often they are reminders of our sin. That is, reminders not of some religious rule-breaking, but the unjustifiable harm that I have committed or have been implicit with. And so when God's holiness, purity, perfection, and goodness are on display, they are not perceived by humans as something pleasant, but it's utterly terrifying. There is something about God's goodness that exposes my own evil. There's something about God's glory that casts a light on my own depravity. So needless to say, that feels a little uncomfortable. It's with this understanding then, this narrative of theophanies that our author of Hebrews has in mind as he or she begins the last of many lesser to greater comparisons found in this letter. Now, our author is going to start with first with a quick reference to Esau, which is this very old story found in the book of Genesis. It's mentioned here in verse 16. See to it that no one becomes an immoral or godless person as Esau was, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, if you've never heard this story before, the cliff notes on it is this. Esau's twin and slightly younger brother Jacob wants his divine blessing that has been bestowed to Esau. But Esau views his blessing more as an entitlement. He's never really meditated on the value of it. It's just his because of his birth order. And so Jacob sets up a scheme to convince Esau to trade away his divine blessing for, get this, a really good bowl of soup. Now, that might have been she-crab soup, which would have been more understandable. However, this is what financial experts have termed a stupid deal. Like worse than when you were a kid on the playground and you traded your favorite toy for those everlasting God stoppers, right? You thought that was a good deal. Why did no one tell me they were not everlasting? Very frustrated by that. 
So Esau, who doesn't come off too well in the original story. In fact, in Jewish commentary, though, they hold him up not only as the ultimate idiot in the Bible, but as a man who was so consumed by short-term material gain that he traded away his eternal divine blessings from God. Now, why then does our author of Hebrews bring him up? Because scholars believe that the Hebrew Christian congregation that this letter is being read to is most likely a middle class congregation. And at this current stage of first century Christianity, the most immediate fear is not that they will be killed for their faith by the Romans, but that they will have their property confiscated by the Romans. Our author of Hebrews has already said this has happened back in chapter 10. And relatively speaking, the people in this church have material affluence and so just like Esau if they view their relationship with God as an entitlement if they haven't meditated on the value of the gospel they might be tempted to casually trade it away we'll give up our faith to keep our stuff we'll betray our fellow believers for short-term material gain and they'll forfeit the blessing they've inherited. Now, as a middle-class person that feels that terrible sense of precariousness around my financial security, this is the life as a millennial, right? I find this actually very personally very convicting. But I realize the scary part for a lot of people is actually the next verse in verse 17. You know that later... When he wanted to inherit the blessing was rejected for he found no chance to repent even though he sought the blessing with tears. Again, as we have said throughout this series, this is not meant to be read as a systematic theology on the doctrines of soteriology, that is who gets saved. This is hyperbolic rhetoric meant to create an emotional response in the listener But there is contained within this statement a really important truth about human psychology. It's not that Esau wanted to repent but wasn't allowed to. The Greek says he literally could not find a place to repent. You see, Esau grieved the consequences of his actions, but he didn't grieve the action that brought him the consequences. And I think this can happen A lot in churches. Look at verse 14. Pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and through it many become defiled. Y'all, I have known people who have wreaked havoc with gossip in the church. And when they are finally confronted about it, instead of confessing, well, they just leave and they don't come back. I have known abusers who have been confronted on the harm they are causing, and instead of repenting, they will just run for it. Oh, yes, they'll have tears. They will hate the consequences. Many of them will even have a root of bitterness that springs up against the church. But they'll never find that place in their heart to repent. You see, when we read Hebrews' warnings here, the warnings are serious. We shouldn't try to water them down, but let's understand the real warning. 
Our author isn't talking about the danger of losing my forgiveness to a particular kind of sin that I will almost certainly never succumb to. Our author is talking about the danger of me developing a hardened heart from the stubbornness of my own sin that I could very easily succumb to. And so with that warning in mind, our author brings us to the images of two contrasting mountains, Sinai and Zion, which represent spiritual endpoints, uh, the future reality of my life. And we'll also see two contrasting theophanies, God the judge and Christ the mediator. So let's look at the first mountain and theophany in verse 18. You have not come to something that can be touched, a destructive fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg not that another word be spoken to them for they cannot endure the order that was given. If even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Oh, doesn't this sound like a lovely place? Destructive fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest. And I only thought tempests were at sea, but apparently there was like a tempest on the mountain. Like when, when God showed up, it probably looked something like this to the average Hebrew or elf. Mount Sinai basically was Mount Doom and Moses was pretty much Frodo because he's like, he's the only one who can go. And yes, I realize I am messing with the Middle Earth timeline here. Do not hold it against me. Just, just run with it. So our author of Hebrews is saying, look, under the old religious system, under institutional religion, that's all you had. You might have some protective fencing. You might have some boundaries. You might have some religious leader go-betweens like Moses. But at the end of the day, you are still left with what appears like a destructive fire, darkness, gloom, and a tempest. Religion helps give you some sense of safety around the divine. But it doesn't resolve that terrifying contrast between God's holiness and my sinfulness. What's the alternative then? Our author is going to offer a better kind of mountain. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now this mountain is conceptual. It's not a literal mountain somewhere in the way that Sinai was. Mount Zion represents the fully realized future of how God wants to redeem and restore the world and look at the differences. On Sinai, it's a barren wasteland. On Zion, it's a beautiful community. On, on, on Sinai, it's gloomy. On Zion, it's literally a party. The angels are there rocking out to Taylor Swift and the Ticketmaster actually works. Some of you really had problems with that, wow. <laughs> on Sinai... 
God's perfection exposes our sins. On Zion, the perfect God has perfected us from our sins. So why is this all so different? Because there's a new institutional religion to buy into? No. Because there's a new theophany. A new appearance of divinity revealed to humanity. Jesus, the mediator, not of a new religion, but of a new covenant, a new promise by God, sprinkled with Jesus' shed blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. But who's Abel? Abel was the first recorded murder, murder victim in the Bible. Killed by his own brother Cain. You see, it was said that the blood of Abel cried out to God. And then there was this ellipsis, this pause, this blank space for you, the reader, to fill in. Did the blood of Abel cry out for justice? Punishment? Vengeance. Humans have gotten these often confused, haven't we? And yet, Jesus, a murder victim not by just one person, but by his own religion and his own legal system, his blood cries out for something altogether different. Mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation. This better word, this new covenant is so much greater. So much greater that we might be tempted to think that the God portrayed in the Old Testament is different than the God portrayed in the New Testament. Or perhaps our understanding of God in the New Testament represents such an evolution forward that our understanding of God in the Old Testament, well, that one is rendered obsolete. Now, there is some truth to this. Our author of Hebrews has said this from the beginning. The theophany of God revealed in Jesus Christ is a better theophany than the one of God revealed to Moses. In part, it is better because it is more clear. But how different are they? Perhaps not as much as we may think. Let's look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. You see, why our two theophanies appeared to be different, they are not two different gods. Our author of Hebrews says the same one who spoke at Mount Sinai in the past is the same one who speaks from Mount Zion in the future. The same one who once shook the earth is the same one who will shake the heavens. Yes, how God is portrayed in the Old Testament in New Testaments does show an evolution 
to our understanding of God. Jesus often serves as a clarifier of who God is, but ultimately these portrayals are more complementary than anything else. Our author wants us to know that they are showing different facets of the same God. Why does our author take the time to establish that? Because if these two theophanies are the same God, you know what that also means? Our two mountains are actually the same mountain. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion are the same. But how's that possible? We've just spent all this time explaining why they're different. How can they be the same mountain? Because how you relate to God will determine how you perceive the mountain. Let me say that again. How you relate to God will determine how you perceive the mountain. Remember, God was terrifying at Sinai not because God was bad but because our sin was bad. Unresolved sin disrupts our relationship with God. And when my sin is before the holiness of God, that holiness will appear as a destructive fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. But Jesus changes how I relate to God. Let's look at verse 27. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of what is shaken. That is created things so that what cannot be shaken may may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Y'all, God has a way of taking the things that humanity thinks are important and powerful and enduring and shaking them until they crumble. These created things, these human efforts are unable to resolve the sin that disrupts our relationship with God and brings harm into the world. But the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus gives us, really places us in a kingdom that cannot be shaken one that is truly important and powerful and enduring. And here's what that means. What I offer to God now becomes, as verse 28 says, acceptable. What I had that was insufficient, what was flawed, what was fear-based, what did not cut it becomes acceptable. It becomes pleasing to God. Jesus makes me a citizen of the kingdom of God and changes how I relate to God. And this changes everything. Because before, just like the Hebrews at Mount Sinai, I would not be able to bear God speaking. I would not be able to hear the words that name my sin. My ego in protection would flee from it. But Jesus' better word now only names my sin in order to forgive it, in order to finally resolve it. 
And so without my sin to disrupt my relationship with God, God's holiness no longer terrifies. The tempest becomes peace. Gloom becomes glory. Darkness becomes light. Even what appeared as destructive fire isn't any longer. Our author of Hebrews tells us in verse 29, that which the Hebrews thought was destructive fire because of their sin is in reality a good consuming fire. A fire that refines, that gets out the dross, that purifies. Same fire in terms of appearance. But my perception of its purpose is now changed because of how I relate to God. And so Sinai and Zion are the same. They are two sides of the same mountain. And how I relate to God will determine how I perceive the mountain. If my sin is unresolved, I will only be able to see a terrifying Mount Sinai. I will see no path up, no hope. But if my sin is resolved, the smoke will clear and I will see Zion. And Christ will guide me up the mountain safely And without fear. So I need to ask myself this morning. Which mountain am I seeing? Friends, hear this good news. The gospel changes our perception around spirituality in two ways this morning. It exposes the lie that my sins are inconsequential. But it also exposes the other lie that God is angry and wants to punish me for it. Jesus, the better theophany, restores my relationship with God and invites me to join in the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. May this be how you relate to God. May this be the mountain you see. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
So everybody must have just understood it perfectly this morning because yes. nobody has any questions. But oh, thank you guys. <laughs> um, we did get one. Um, in forgiveness of a wrong that we've been holding on to, how do we go about laying that down when there isn't any a- interaction with the other person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so sometimes, right, you, you've gotten to a place in your life where you, you want to forgive a person, but that person is no longer around in your life for whatever reason. I do death or distance or something like that. Um, and, and so how do you go about that? Um, well, I, I think the person is already kind of got them there, right? Like, I think sometimes the hardest part of forgiveness is, is to, you know, speak those words to that person. And, and you're, sometimes you're worried about the response. And so if you're coming to a place, this is just how I've personally done it. If I don't really have a real relationship with that person anymore, I can't speak to them. Um, being able to say in my heart and my mind, I wish them best in their life. Uh, and, and that can be, I wish them best spiritually. I wish, I, I wish them best in terms of their relationship with God. I, I, even if I were to find out like that they're living their best life 10 years from now, like that I would be able to say like, I wish the best for them in that. And sometimes it also means, sometimes I also wish that they would come to justice maybe because that might also be the best for them, right? Is that they have accountability for their actions. But ultimately, I say I wish the best for their life in all manners. Uh, And I think if I can say that to my heart, that I I would say that's a good metric of being able to say that I have reached a place of forgiveness for them. Okay. Um, Just out of curiosity, um, with the two mountains we were discussing this morning, is that any kind of symbolism, like one is heaven and one is hell? Okay, yeah, that's a great question because, right, you look at the Mount, Mount, uh, uh, Mount Sinai slash Mount Doom. Kind of looks pretty hellish, right? But it's important to note that God is still present there. So this is not like, okay, here's hell, here's heaven. Also, this is not, that's not a theology of our author of Hebrews. That's not something that he's working with. And so it's careful to note that why... Uh, Mount Zion would, I would say, be more of a parallel to heaven, right? You got angels, you got God, you got joy, you got community. Um, we shouldn't be careful not to say, well, this is just a heaven or hell contrast. Like, which way are you going? But this is important to say, here are our spiritual directions. And I think it is important to note that, right, um, he's really wanting to, to, to drive home this point of like, what do you do with the holiness of God and with your sin and, and why that, that creates distance? Um, I'll say this last thing. Uh, the Greek Orthodox or Orthodox Church in general has a very interesting idea around the afterlife and that they say that like actually everybody goes before God, both Christians and non-Christians, right? And, and it ends, and they kind of use this metaphor of the sun. It's like you go to God and God is the sun. If you are like, if you have the protection, you like the sun, you're like, this is great. The glory of God is wonderful. And then for the people who aren't, they're like, this is terrible. This is too too bright, my eyes hurt. Um, and that's like hell for them, right? And so it's the same God, they're all in their presence, but it's how you relate, which actually gives you a different experience. And so I think we're seeing something like that with these two mountain uh, kind of pictures. So, good question. Very cool. Well, if you think of any other questions later this afternoon, feel free to text them in, or if you're watching this later, text them in, and he'll address them tomorrow in the live stream. Great. Thank you all to Claire.